You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Healing the man sick of the palsy. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast, a Christadelphian podcast by Christadelphian Video. The story of the man healed of palsy is examined in this episode from three gospel record accounts. This provides insight around the correlations between hearing God's word, believing it and recognising our need for healing and forgiveness. Well, we know that God does not waste, waste his words in scripture. And so when we consider all the miracles our Lord performed that are not recorded, then the ones that are are definitely worth us carefully considering. And this miracle here is recorded across three gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And so there must be some significance to it. And we know that Christ's parables and miracles often have a very pointed meaning. And once the meaning of that incident is established, the rest of the record fits around that idea. We'll see in this particular incident of the healing of the man with the palsy that it becomes a great opportunity for our Lord to teach a very powerful lesson to the Jews and to us. So what is palsy? Well, palsy is the Greek word paraluo, and it means paralysis. It means to loosen, to weaken, or dissolve. And it's interesting that palsy is often the result of a disease that starts in the brain, which then affects the spinal cord and nervous system, ultimately causing some form of paralysis to the victim's body. And so in this man's case, it seems as though he may have been completely paralysed. And so where is our Lord when uh, we take up the story in our reading? So it's been about a year since um, the wedding at Cana, which Brother Luke dealt with last week. And Cana is there, west of the Sea of Galilee. After the wedding, our Lord journeys to Capernaum. He then moves on down to Jerusalem. He spends some time down there and in the area of Judea. He then returns from there back to Galilee and to Nazareth. And we know there he is rejected at his hometown. So he moves on from Nazareth back to Capernaum. And it seems that he makes Capernaum his his home or his headquarters as he begins his ministry around the area of Galilee. And in chapter 4 of Luke, he begins by performing many miracles and healing many people in Capernaum, and his fame and his popularity starts to grow. So Christ then looks to move on to other areas of Galilee because it was necessary that he he was to preach and because that was his mission 
So if you just have a look across at verse 43, he says, And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. And so healing people was restoring their health short term. But it was cross words that could truly save them. And so his miracles were merely a sign of his authority to speak. And so preaching was his primary concern so that people could hear his life-saving message. And so he moves on from Capernaum and preaches in all the Gospels around the area of Galilee. And so by the start of chapter 5, he is somewhere on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. I couldn't pinpoint exactly where. But it's there that he heals this man with leprosy in chapter 5 um, that we see in verse 12 and 13. And he says to the man in verse 14 specifically to tell no one. And we might say, why? Well, Luke's record doesn't quite give us the details, so just come back to Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 1. And verse 40 and 45. So he says unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze it abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. And so no doubt this leprous man thought that he was doing Christ a favour, but in fact it did him a great disservice. And, his, and our Lord's ability to preach now was being hindered by crowds of people wanting to be healed. And so what does he do? Well, Mark's record, uh, Matthew's record says that he enters into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And if we go down to chapter 2 of Mark and verse 1, he enters into Capernaum. So he crosses the Lake of Galilee by ship back to Capernaum. And so Capernaum means village of comfort. And it's here that Christ's words would give much comfort to one man in particular, and to all those who were prepared to hear him. So if we keep reading in chapter 2 of Mark, he entered into Capernaum, and after some days it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And we know this scene well. The house here, words got out that Jesus is in, in the house and the house is packed with people. And every doorway and entrance is jammed. Matthew and Luke both talk about there being multitudes of people there. And so it would seem that this is perhaps quite a large house. And he's there to preach the word unto them. And so on the other side of Galilee, 
where he's come from, we could see that he couldn't enter the city. And so he's almost had to sneak away by boat to escape the crowds there and he quietly enters into Capernaum in order that he might preach again. And so I think the records show that our Lord was desperate to be preaching again. And so when we take up the story in Luke chapter 5, he's gone to quite some effort to be where he is in the house preaching. And so this is where the details of Luke's gospel are really amazing and inform us to what is really going on here at this occasion. So only Luke starts by specifically telling us who was there. It says in verse 17, And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. And so the doctors of the law here are the scribes and they are well known for their knowledge on the law. Luke then goes on to tell us where they had come from. And they had come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And so word about Jesus must have gotten right down into Jerusalem at their headquarters. And it seems that the scribes and Pharisees have put together a delegation of representatives from all over the land to come up and examine this new preacher and healer in Galilee and to hear his teaching for themselves. And so you think the amount of scribes and Pharisees alone must have been huge. And these wouldn't have been your average Pharisees. These would have been the high-ranking and elite ones. And they had good reason to come because their prestige and status among the people was possibly starting to suffer because, you see, they had already been unfavourably compared. Back in Mark chapter 1, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority and not as a scribe's. And so you can imagine them hearing that would have really got their attention. And the people absolutely feared these men. They had an outward appearance of righteousness, but underneath they were thugs. And if they didn't like you or your teachings, they could cause you a great deal of trouble, even to the point of killing you. And there's possibly hundreds here who have come a long way to see this new teacher teaching in their territory. So you could imagine that it would be, for anyone other than our Lord, quite an intimidating encounter. And you could just imagine the tension in that house. So I think it's worth us just thinking for a minute how we would be in that position. You know, could we effectively preach... I don't think I could. But our Lord is so composed and fearless and we're going to see that he will take control of this entire encounter. So Mark's record said that Christ was preaching, which simply means to utter. However, Luke says that he was teaching. And so the word teaching 
is the Greek word didasko, and it means to teach. Um, but Luke also uses the, um, the phrase doctors of the law. And if we look at the name of, or the word doctors, that means nomodidaskalos. And so you can see that the name or the Greek word for teaching is also in that word for doctors. And that means that they are a teacher, an interpreter of the law, specifically among the Jews. And this is the only occurrence of this word in the gospel. And Luke uses it here. And so I believe that Luke has coupled these two words together to highlight that this would be an occasion where our Lord was going to specifically confront these so-called teachers so that he might teach them. Why? So that he might heal them. And so Luke says at the end of that verse, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And this is the key to understanding why there is so much emphasis on this miracle. This statement about healing them is a reference from Isaiah chapter 6. Just come over there. Because here, Isaiah has been given a message. And so in verse 9, he is told... Isaiah, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And so the message Isaiah received was that God's long-suffering towards his people would come to an end because they would refuse, would refuse to hear and see the truth. And we're going to see that this is exactly what they are going to do on this occasion. Christ later quotes almost these exact words in Matthew 13. And in verse 15, he says, oh, the, the disciples ask Christ why he, why he speaks in parables. And he says this, For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest at any time they should hear with their ears, hear, <laughs> hear with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. And so you'll notice there that Christ has said they have closed their eyes and so they've been given a choice and they chose to shut their eyes. Mark's Gospel, Christ also uses words from Isaiah and he says in Mark 4 verse 12 that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And so we're being told that Christ was there on this occasion to reveal that he was in possession of a power far beyond just healing people's physical illnesses. Christ was there to heal people of their sins. 
But this was going to be an issue with the scribes and Pharisees because they saw no need to be forgiven. Their system of worship was vile and corrupt and it was all about outward appearances and purity. But that wasn't the result of inward purity. Inwardly they were as obsessed by lust and of power and prestige. And so Christ says of them in Matthew 23 that they were like whited sepulchres which indeed appear beautiful outward but within are, like, are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And so the scribes and Pharisees saw themselves as the custodians of the law of Moses and the truth and they hung tenaciously onto the law. And we know the law of Moses was holy, just and good. However, it was designed by God to highlight men's sins but it was also impossible for men to keep. But the Jews believed that they could keep it and therefore earn their salvation. And so to them there was no need for another way. According to them they had their own salvation sorted. And so long as they kept the law and to ensure that they didn't inadvertently break one of God's laws, they created an additional set of laws of their own and they heap these additional laws on the people like a huge burden. And so I had a bit of a look and I just want to show you some examples that I found that, of their laws and just how outrageous they were. And these are just a few um, that are specific to the Sabbath and we know they made laws about a whole host of things. But under the law, God asked them to just cease from working on the Sabbath so that they so the day could be devoted to him. And so the Jews with their legalistic mindset went about to identify everything that was work or might be confused with working. And they even went so far as to create laws that were designed to be like fences to make sure they didn't inadvertently do something they, that could lead to work. And so as time has gone on, these laws have evolved and so some of the ones here um, are more modern versions. So on the Sabbath day, you are forbidden to do these things. So you cannot climb a tree. What's the reason for that? Well, you may break twigs or tear leaves off the tree and that would be construed as reaping, as you would be plucking parts from a living plant. You're forbidden to cut hair because that would be shearing. You cannot braid hair. That would be weaving. Drawing blood for a blood test could be seen as slaughtering. So sorry for you, you're going to have no Jews in your clinic on the Sabbath. You might slaughter them. You're forbidden to open an umbrella because that would be erecting a roof and therefore building. Wearing eyeglasses if they are not permitted, uh, if they are not permanently needed, uh, that would be seen as carrying a burden. Turning on a light is kindling a fire. Turning off a light is extinguishing a fire. And they even remove their light bulb from out of their fridges on the Sabbath so that when they use their fridge they don't light 
or kindle a fire. Uh, tearing opening, open a letter um, is forbidden, just in case when you open that letter you tear through some of the writing or lettering, and that would be a raising. And my dad said that when he went to Israel, they even have separate lifts that stop and open the doors on every floor so they don't have to push a button. So these are things that they can't even touch and these are those fence laws. So scissors and hammers need to be locked away because if you accidentally pick up scissors, you might accidentally cut something. A hammer, you might hit a nail and that would be building. And so they, they even recommend that you change the way you walk on the Sabbath. And they take this from Isaiah 58, um, a verse there that says that on the Sabbath you shouldn't do, do things thine own way. And they take the word own and they look at that in the Hebrew and it means habit or usual way. And so the rabbis suggest that you should not walk as you usually would um, on your, when you work. And so there should be no rushing or long strides on the Sabbath. And so we might find them a little bit amusing, but to the Jews, these are deadly serious. And these are, like I said, just a few of the laws for the Sabbath. And they made hundreds of these kinds of laws. And so you can imagine what trying to keep that law and those trivial laws would be like. It would be literally paralysing. And so Christ says in Matthew 15 verse 6 that you have made the commandments of God of none effect by your traditions. And so their so-called worship was worth nothing to God. And despite how hard they tried to keep the law, it still condemned them. And so this mindset was keeping people out of the kingdom. And again, Christ in Matthew 23 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. So God never intended it to be this way. Salvation was not something that could be earned. Salvation was a gift available through faith. And it's always been that way. And so the discerning Israelite under the law who believed God's promises would realise that there must have been another way by which man could be saved because the law couldn't save them. It only condemned them. And so in faith, they looked for their Messiah. So God intended the law to be a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ, who could save them. And until they accepted that, the state of the nation was completely paralysed and helpless. So our Lord was there to teach them so that he could save them. And so the actual miracle of the healing of the man with the palsy is incidental to the fact that Christ was here in Capernaum in the house to heal them. And so the opportunity for them to accept the truth and be healed was still available. But a day was coming when the opportunity would be over. So just come back to Luke chapter 5. And Luke's record leading up to this encounter has been carefully and clearly establishing the facts about Christ. His miracles of healing 
have shown that Christ possessed the power to heal and that he had sympathy and compassion towards his people and towards people in need. And in the healing, in the episode of the healing of the leper, we see his willingness to heal. Because the question the leper had wasn't whether Christ was able to heal him. He already believed he had the power. His question was whether Christ was willing to help heal him. And Christ's response in verse 13 is, I will be thou clean. And so all this, his power, his compassion and grace was present here in the house for them. But Christ needed something first. There was just one thing our Lord was so desperately looking for from them. He was looking for a willing response to his words by first acknowledging their need to be healed and then coming before Christ and acknowledging that he was the one sent from God who had the power to do so. In other words, there needed to be a demonstration of faith based on the truth. So Christ was here on earth to usher in the way of salvation through faith. And this was their opportunity. This was the whole point of the encounter. What an amazing opportunity for them if they could see it. And so I think it's just absolutely amazing what happens next. Because an exact demonstration of what Christ was looking for literally falls in their laps. And I think Luke also shows his amazement because he starts verse 18 with, And behold. It's like he's saying, you won't believe what happened next. Right? And this man is let down from the roof whose physical state directly represents the spiritual state of the religious leaders sitting right there. However, the critical difference was that this man and his, friend and his friends acknowledged their need for Christ and were openly demonstrating their faith in him. So just have a look at the contrast between these men and the Pharisees. See, verse 18, these men, they sought. They were actively seeking Christ. What were the scribes and Pharisees doing? Well, in verse 17, they were sitting by. They were inactive, self-righteous critics. Christ was there to heal. And these five men were actively taking the opportunity because they believed the things they had seen and heard about Jesus. The opportunity was to, to be healed was available to all those who would seek it through faith. So Matthew 7 says, we know these well, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Hebrews 11 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so the opportunity was there to those who wanted it. So in verse 19, when they could not find a way that they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went up onto the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. 
And you may recall our brother Sam gave an excellent exhort. And in his exhort, he made the point that the reason these men couldn't access the house was because it was full of the scribes and Pharisees. And their presence there in the house had excluded everyone else. And this is exactly what they had done to God's ecclesia. They had filled it with themselves and kept everyone else out. And so these men have to use unconventional ways to get their friend to Jesus. And again, compare the Pharisees' entrance to um, how their entrance would have been. You know, there would have been no obstacles for them coming before Christ. You know, seats would have just emptied as they strolled into that house. But undeterred, the friends come up with another plan. Now, I assume they don't, well, they didn't normally carry ropes. And so they would have had to run off and find some ropes, possibly, I assume, from nearby fishing boats. And they decide to lower him from the roof above Christ. Now, it's not exactly important, but I found it interesting. But Mark's record says this, that they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And so there's always been the idea that these men dug a hole through the roof of the house to let their friend down through. And as a builder, I've struggled with that idea. Uh, I'm not saying it wasn't possible. It was certainly possible. But it would have taken a considerable amount of time and effort and would have been extremely messy and dusty. And so I find it hard to believe that people would have continued to sit below men breaking a hole through the roof above them. And so I looked a bit closer and found that larger buildings back then often had a courtyard in the middle of the house, which provided light and ventilation to the centre of the building. And this courtyard is often covered by an awning for protection against rain in winter and heat in summer. And so I had a look at the word broken there and it can mean remove. So this word is only used one other time and that's in Galatians 4 and it's used there and it means to pluck out or it's used by or in Galatians as being plucked out. And so it has this idea of removing something. And so if we look at Mark's record again, they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had removed it, they let down the bed. And so I think, um, oh, Luke says that they let him down through the tiling. Luke doesn't necessarily say anything about a hole being made in the roof, but I had a look at the word tiling and that can almost can also mean a thin roof or awning or the roof itself. And so I believe that these men went up onto the roof, lifted up the awning, located Christ, pulled back part of the awning and let down their friend from there. And so in verse 19, you'll see that they let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus 
And so that's not necessarily the midst of the people. That could be the midst of the building. So as I said, it's not exactly important. But what is important is that these men, these men's faith was not going to be deterred by a little bit of hard work in order to get their friend to Jesus. Now we might think that that is slightly presumptuous. Interrupting what was a really important meeting between Christ and the scribes and Pharisees. Well, no, these men were acting in faith. They truly believed that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, that he would heal them. There was no question in their minds. And these men were united in their belief. So I have these coloured in as... It's good to have them coloured because it reinforces the point. And behold, men brought in a bed, in a, brought in a bed, a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before, before him. And when they could not find a way, find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith. And so, not one of these men had any doubts. And faith will always find a way. Christ did not turn his back on that kind of response. Our Lord was always moved by acts of faith. Of faith. And you can probably think of some examples. And so it is then in verse 20 that when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And so there is a, a sense of desperation here. And it seems as though it's now critical that they get this man before Christ. It's almost as if this is literally his last opportunity to be healed. And so a question I had was, why does this man come to Jesus now? Why didn't he come before when Christ was in Capernaum? So just have a look across to um, chapter 4 and verse 40. And this is when Christ was in Capernaum previously and had healed many people. And now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So why did this man not come then? Well, the record doesn't exactly tell us what kind of disease this man had, except that it had paralysed him. And so I think the fact that Christ simply looks into the man's eyes and identifies that his greatest need is the forgiveness of his sins strongly suggests and indicates that whatever disease he had that had caused his paralysis was the result of an immoral life and the consequences of his sins were now very evident and he was utterly ashamed. And so it's possible then he had a form of syphilis which can in its final stages completely paralyse a person and this would certainly fit with the record. 
because the scribes and Pharisees are sitting there right in front of Christ who were also paralysed as a result of their sins. And I think it's possible then that this man had not previously come because he was ashamed of his sins and he doubted Christ's willingness to heal him. But his faith in Christ had grown. And so what an amazing opportunity arises for Christ to teach a powerful lesson and to demonstrate to the scribes and Pharisees the power and compassion that was available to heal those who respond in faith. And how does the Lord react to this man at his feet? Well, he turns to him and says, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. But blasphemy was their first thought. They didn't even consider if it were possible or not. So in their haste to criticise him, they failed to remember that God can delegate that kind of authority to others as he had in the past. Back in Exodus 23, he sent a special angel to guide and protect the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God said, Israel, beware of this angel and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And so their failure here was not going to be the result of them from, from the result of them doubting or questioning whether Christ had the divine authority to forgive the sins, their failure would be from them ignoring the indisputable evidence which Christ was now going to give to prove that he indeed had God's divine authority. And so verse 22 says, and when Jesus perceived their thoughts. Mark says, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye things in your hearts? So Christ now performs a miracle which only they would have been aware of and he reads their thoughts. And his compassion and grace towards them now turns to judgment. So he says, what reason ye in your hearts? Verse 23. Whether it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. So Christ now offers them a challenge. If he has the power that he claims, then it's no easier for him to say one way or the other. But the evidence of the man's forgiveness of his sins was not visible. However, healing him would be clearly visible. So if Christ now heals this man, then that would be evidence to validate the forgiveness of the man's sins. And so Christ has taken complete control here and use the opportunity to completely corner the thinking of the scribes and Pharisees. There, there's like no way out for them. 
you know, if Christ heals this man, then he must also have the divine authority to forgive sins. And therefore, he must be the Messiah. So Christ says in verse 24, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And Christ here now uses the title, the Son of Man, for the first time. He will use this title over 80 times in the Gospels, exclusive, exclusively in relation to himself. Ezekiel was called Son of Man because he was a type of Christ, but he was never referred to as the Son of Man because the title, the Son of Man, is a title specifically used in relation to Christ. And so why would Christ use this title of himself here? Wouldn't you perhaps use the title Son of God if you were trying to convince people you had divine origins and power? Well, in the Old Testament, the Son of Man in the Hebrew is Ben-Adam, which means the Son of Adam. And so this title identifies our Lord with mankind. However, the meaning of the title is much more than just identifying him with man. Because the title, the Son of Man, or the Son of Man, would be a special son of Adam, strengthened by God for the express purpose of conquering sin. As a special son, he would possess the necessary credentials for God to work directly through him. He would need a special moral capacity towards the things of God and this he inherited from his father. Secondly, he needed an enthusiastic and willing spirit and attitude towards the things of God and particularly the will and purpose of his father which he did, so much so that he would obey his father even unto death on the cross in order that God's righteousness might be shown to the world. Because our Lord possessed these two crucial things, God could work directly through him, which made him a moral manifestation of God on earth. And so in John 5 it says, in verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And so this title speaks so much more than just Christ's humanity. It speaks of the divine authority that was given to Christ by his Heavenly Father to execute God's power and judgment on earth in the conquest of sin so that he might have dominion over all things. And so these are all the thoughts that are bound up in this meaning behind the title of the Son of Man. And so it's extremely fitting that Christ would use this title of himself here. So he says... But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go to thine house. And immediately 
he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Notice how Luke says that he rose up before them. I've got that circled and linked with verse 19 and I've got before Jesus circled. So he came in before Jesus. He now rises up before the scribes and Pharisees as living proof of the power of Christ that was present to heal them. And so the man now departs completely healed, morally and physically, something the law could never do. He is a new man and he glorifies God. And so the section ends in verse 26. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. And the word strange there is paradoxus. And it means unexplained or unexpected. And so what was the unexpected things they saw? Well, I think Matthew's record answers that. And Matthew says, But when the multitude saw it, they marvelled and glorified God, which had given power, such power unto men. So in the past, God may have given authority to angels or to an angel to forgive sins, but they had just seen that authority had been given to a man and they feared him. So the scribes and Pharisees would have to go away now and think about those things that they had just been eyewitnesses of and reconcile those facts with what scripture said about the Son of Man. Christ had graciously given them ample proof and opportunity to change but they didn't. And in John 12, the people say, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever, and how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Sadly, they still didn't know him. And so despite our Lord so graciously reaching out to the scribes and Pharisees, the seeds of jealousy had been sown and they would ultimately reject him and kill him. So our God could say of his people in Isaiah chapter 5, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And so their sins would remain, and the consequences of that would be terrible. But we know, brethren and sisters, that Christ will ultimately heal his people in the age to come. Their blindness will be removed. And they will see and accept him as their Messiah. And so we look forward to that time when Christ will come again to not only heal the nation of Israel, but the whole world. So what have we seen tonight? Well, I think we've seen again just how wonderful a man our Lord was. He was sympathetic towards the feelings and weaknesses of those around him, even the scribes and Pharisees. His touch and his words brought peace of mind and comfort to the afflicted people who sought him. And so we too can be rest assured of his interest in our spiritual well-being. 
we've seen that the principles concerning salvation have never changed. We know these well. Mark 16, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. Ephesians 2, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So our response and our approach to God should be one of thankfulness and deep appreciation for all that he's done for us when we were helpless. At times we too can be like the man with the palsy and the consequences of our sins can be spiritually paralysing to the point where we can't bring ourselves to the feet of Christ. It's in those times that we need like-minded, faithful friends who can recognise our need and bring us there. And most of all, we need to be like the Son of Man. He is our example. So we need to, sh- to, to show compassion and grace towards our brethren and sisters and indeed to all people. So brethren and sisters, we thank our Father in Heaven for the wonderful way of salvation that he has provided through his dear son and that we too have been given the opportunity to be saved, that through baptism and the forgiveness of our sins, we have been morally healed. And as the moral healing of the man preceded his physical healing, so we look forward to that day when we too will be physically healed from the effects of our sin-prone nature And we, with our Lord, will go forward to heal the world and have dominion over all things. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.